have a lengthy passage. If you would like to be seated, you can. I'm going to read 10 verses, verses 1 through 10. I know it's Wednesday. Most of you have worked today or have you maybe been out of the parade walking all over the place. So it's fine. I'm not offended if you sit down. But but from Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. I want to talk to you tonight for a few minutes, and I want to title this, It's Midnight. I, I've been feeling this so heavy on my heart since early December, and I didn't even know where I was going to be, be, uh, be teaching or preaching it at. But as it turns out, I really feel like this is a word from God for you tonight, for our church for me tonight, for you. And so I just want you to put your Bibles down, if you will, for a moment and just pray that God really speaks to your heart tonight and that, uh, that, that we're able to receive his word. Would you do that with me for just a moment? Lord, we just want you to speak to your word tonight. We want your will to be done, God, into this place, Lord. I know it's Wednesday. I know we've worked all day and people are tired. But, God, we just need a refreshing of your presence here in this place tonight, God. Come and meet us, God, and confirm your word with signs following, God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Speak to us tonight. Let our ears be open to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. So midnight is an hour in which everyone is normally asleep. Now, just so you know, since I like to look things up in the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have a Strong's Concordance, and I have eSword, which is a free tool. You can download, and it's a Bible study tool. So this word midnight does not mean 12 o'clock midnight. It means the middle of the night. Now, Scripture often uses various watches of the night to symbolize spiritual seasons or times. For example, in John chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus said this, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. While it is day. The night comes when no man can work. And we know later on uh, in the book of Romans, Paul said, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let's put on the armor of light. That's Romans 13 and 12. I didn't have that verse for the media guys, but... Uh, I just thought I'd throw that out. And so in that generation, their midnight was Rome getting ready to be pillaged and ransacked and destroyed. I think in our generation, since we're nearly 2,000 years removed from it, we don't often realize just how significant that was. But, But Jesus said it's daytime, there's plenty of time left. But later on, Paul said in Romans, there's not much time left. We have to cast off the works of darkness. You could say that in the days of the Lord it was daytime, but Jesus warned of a night that was coming. Daytime was the time, of course, when people would normally work in anticipation of the coming night and the dangers that the darkness would bring. 
Jesus spoke a parable about a wedding. And he spoke of ten virgins. There were five wise, as you know, and there were five foolish. Now, we've all heard this parable taught and preached many years, if you've been in church for any length of time at all. I'm certain that this is not the first time you've heard it. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it, but I will say a few things about it. Scripture says, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Until midnight, there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom comes. Now midnight, of course, that's obviously the middle of the night. What you may not know is that Jewish weddings were generally celebrated in the night. But they usually began at the rising of the evening star. But in the case of Jesus' parable, the the groom tarried more than what was ordinarily customary for him to tarry. Furthermore, the custom of Jewish weddings in those days was was that the groom would come home with his bride after the wedding was over. And some of his young virgin female friends were invited to come and wait with lamps and oil in their lamps until someone else dispatched before the rest, brought forth word that the bride and the groom were at hand. And at that time, they would go out and they would yell just with an earshot of those, of those particular young ladies that were waiting to, uh, to run out and to meet the groom and his new bride. And he, would, he or she would say, Behold, the bride comes, and the groom Go ye out to meet him. And at that point, since it would have been in the middle of the night, as you know, the Jewish wedding started at the beginning of the evening star. It was probably 10, maybe 11 o'clock at night. They would go out with oil in their lamps, and they would, they would light the way for the bride and the groom to come back home. And they would go forth with their lamps trimmed and burning to welcome him and serve as an escort to him and his bride into the house. And in exchange, these virgins would serve as special guests at the marriage feast. They would have a unique place setting, if you will, at that particular place. And so that was the parable that Jesus was speaking about. These ten virgins were those ten young ladies that were assigned their duty to wait for the bride and the bridegroom until it was announced Behold, the bridegroom comes, they would pick up their lamps, and they would go out to meet the bride and light their way. And it was, it was midnight, the middle of the night, way past the time when the wedding should have been over. So we can understand that they were probably weary from the long day. We can only assume that they had other duties and responsibilities that day besides uh, you know, their, their duties just for the wedding that night. They may, women in biblical times are often assigned very hard duties. I mean, you know, they would go down to the well to get water. We don't understand how difficult that was. But you try walking down a well and putting it on your shoulders and and then carrying it back up again. And sometimes they would do that multiple times. Women would often work in the field. uh, As Ruth did, they would would glean in the fields uh, and do various things. And so they would have other responsibilities. So it's kind of understandable that they they were tired from the day. They were sleeping. And, you know, at least not all of them, but half of them. And sleep deprivation will cause you to do crazy things to your mind when you're tired and weary. You ever woke up in the middle of the night, you know, if you're, if you're married to your spouse, like saying something crazy? My wife did this the other night. She woke up, and I think she said something like, she woke up, she sat straight up. This was just a couple nights ago, and she said, I don't know what this is, but I'm not even going to ask. 
And she laid back down, and she went back to sleep. And I brought it up to her the next morning. She doesn't remember it. She's like, I said that? I didn't say that. She has said some wild things in her sleep. <laughs> Yelling out directions at various people. Usually it happens when she's really stressed out about an upcoming event, you know, that she, she has to organize or coordinate. Sleep deprivation will do crazy things for your mind when you're weary and tired. Women that have gone through postpartum depression have often uh, been, been and have not just been tempted to, but many of them have, not many, but some of them have even murdered their babies or shook their babies in a moment of, of, of severe sleep deprivation and in a moment of anger. And, you know, it's easy to cast stones until you're in that time of sleep deprivation and you haven't had sleep in a week and you've got to work the next day and the baby won't stop crying. The baby is colicky and I'm not making excuses. I'm just, I'm just simply laying it out there. Sleep deprivation is a serious thing. And we do things we wouldn't normally do when we're in our right minds because when we are sleep deprived, we are not in our right minds. Because midnight is a perilous time. 2 Timothy 3 and 1, Paul said this, This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. And I've often thought, well, perilous, that means dangerous. And if that's your thinking, that's fine. But I didn't know what it meant either until I looked it up. Perilous does not mean what we normally might think that it means. It does not mean dangerous as some have often thought. But in the Greek, the perfect Greek means a situation that brings about a decrease in strength and stamina. So Paul spoke of a time when there would be a decrease in strength, not of the world, but of the church, simply because of the times or the atmosphere in which we are living in. If you were alive in the year 1950, I know that most of you probably were not. But let's pretend for just a moment that it's 1952, just less than a generation after World War II, less than a decade after World War II ended. And if we were able from that point in 1952 to travel instantaneously to the year 2020, and what kind of shock would we find from that year until now? It's interesting, an old movie that came out in 1989 was called Back to the Future, made some outlandish predictions when Michael J. Fox traveled forward, I think it was like 2014 or 15 or something. And he, he, here I actually looked it up last night. Here are some, some things that they predicted that the year 2015 was going to look like. Flying cars that use alternative fuel. We don't have that yet. Dehydrated food. We do have that, but thank God we don't eat that all the time. Although sometimes it feels like it's dehydrated, depending on what restaurant you go to. Lawyers would be banished from the planet. <coughs> Thumbprints as keys. Isn't that crazy? That, that's a thing. I can get into my iPad with my thumbprint. <coughs> How about this one? Jaws 19. In the 80s, if you were alive then, you know, the big scare was all those Jaws movies. The Cubs would win the World Series. They were only a few years off from that. And there were many other things that they predicted. But if you were alive in 1950 and time traveled in the year 2020, what would you find different? Starting with the church and in a time when apostolic preachers preached against things like television 
at a time when Andy Griffith and I Love Lucy were the main things, and I Love, and what is it, Leave It to Beaver, were the only things or the main things that were on television. And cigarette smoking and alcohol drinking were the worst things of society. Even Back to the Future in 1989 could not imagine the depth and depravity that we have fallen to as a society and as a country. I am not trying to be negative tonight, but I do want to be real to, to help us to understand, as many of you could probably say better than I, the times that we are living in. Abortion in some states are legal up to the time of birth. There are eight states. We heard a lot of hubbub around uh, New York just about last year. You can get abortion apparently in the state of New York. I don't know if they overturned that or not, but up to the time of birth. But there are eight states that have no gestational limits on abortion. That means prior to just prior to the time when the baby sticks his little finger out the womb of the mother. It's legal in these eight states to murder that little baby. Alaska, Colorado, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Vermont, and of course Washington, D.C. On top of that, gay marriage in the name of equality. The world is is literally clamoring for it. And it's becoming the pervading thought among most politicians today. Entire denominations who used to preach holiness now accept, not all of them, but many of them, accept and endorse gay marriage, even to the point some of them in ordaining homosexuals into their pulpits to preach the word of God. There are school shootings, multiple school shootings. Thank God we haven't had one in at least a few months, at least not that I know of. But who knows if it's just around the corner or not, we don't know. Immorality and sexual perversion has literally saturated our society and has become the norm. Pornography is in many homes. It is normalized by the world. Get rich quick through Christ's schemes in some and many so-called churches. We've got violence that's normalized by the world in movies and video games and an entire generation that seems to be calloused and desensitized to it. And yet, it was not the state of the world that concerned Jesus at midnight. It was the state of the church. The world will be the world. We shouldn't be at all surprised about that. But we are not of the night, nor of the darkness. We are of the day. The darkness should not overtake us. I don't think most Christians fully understand the significance of the times that we live in and precisely where we're at on God's prophetic calendar. Israel has been restored as a nation, and the Jewish people have been regathered. Even as far north as Russia, just like the prophets said would happen, they have been regathered as a people and as a nation, and they are in their homeland today. The entire world is clamoring to find a leader in a way to bring about world government. You may have heard uh, the term uh, borderless countries are now an official platform for many political parties, not just in America, but abroad and throughout the whole world. Strong hatred for the Christian right, as it's called. Even to the point of calling the preaching of holiness and the word of God hate speech. There are attacks on businesses who support traditional biblical ideas around marriage and morality. We've seen two liberal senators, at least in the most recent months, uh, 
two liberal senators that have aggressively questioned a Christian judicial nominee because of his membership in a mainstream Catholic service organization just simply because he's Catholic. Apparently, he's not fit to serve because he might rely on the Word of God as his conscience. We've seen a days-long attack on Karen Pence, the vice president's wife, for teaching part-time at a Christian ministry. And we watched a stunning online feeding frenzy just, uh, just about a year ago <clears throat> against students at a Catholic boys' school based on a misleadingly clipped video segment of a much longer confrontation. California attempted to compel pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise free or low-cost abortions. Colorado attempted to compel a man uh, to custom design a cake for a gay wedding, even though he was a Christian. And as if this wasn't enough, we've seen, we've seen tens of thousands of words and commentaries declaring Christians being hateful and bigoted. And all I have to say is this. It's midnight. I remember back in the, uh, back in the mid-'80s, you know, I mostly grew up in church or I came to church when I was very young about 10 years old and I remember going to youth convention I guess I was about 16 maybe 15 16 17 years old in Missouri and they had this big clock up on the wall and and the clock read 11:58 p.m. and somebody preached it's almost midnight I remember brother Guy Rowan preached a message called the burning of the midnight oil and he talked about how there's not much left prophetically that God still has left to do. And he talked about how bad the world was. This was in 1987, 88, right around the mid to late 80s. Now it was about a little over 30 years ago. And if it was 1158 then, if it was almost midnight then, if the things that they were doing as a society then <clears throat> would seem innocent to us, and they do. What have we fallen to today, and what time must it be now but midnight? I am here to declare unto you in the name of Jesus Christ that it is not almost midnight, my friends. It is midnight, and he's coming soon. Paul said it would be like this. In 2 Timothy 3, in verse 2, we read this. For many shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers, hating those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. We've seen this ancient prophecy come to pass right before our very eyes. It's midnight, my friend. It's midnight. Then we find this in Romans 11 and verse 25. Where the Apostle Paul said this, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, everybody say until, the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, I don't want to give a big exegesis on Romans 9, 10, and 11, but here's the, the, the 10,000 foot view of that. God allowed blindness to happen to Israel as a nation, not as individuals, but as a nation, in order or because they hardened their heart to the gospel. 
can find it all the way back dating to the book of Isaiah, where he said, seeing they will, you know, they're going to see, but they will not really see. And hearing they will hear, but they will not hear. That's why Jesus was always saying, he that hath the ears to hear, let him hear. He was saying, I'm talking to this generation, but you can't hear. You can't see what I'm doing. You're seeking after a sign. The Messiah is right before your eyes, but you cannot see him. You don't understand what's happening because your heart is hard. And so God allowed, uh, or rather, God put a hardness over, or a blindness over their eyes so that they would not see because of their hardness of their heart. So blindness has happened to the Jews as a nation so that Jesus, so that they cannot see him as a Messiah. It's happened so that the Gentiles can receive the gospel. So he said, it will happen until... The fullness of the Gentiles is coming. In other words, everybody that's a Gentile that's going to come into the church, when, when that last little Gentile has came into the church, then that blindness will be removed from the Jews as a nation. And you can read this in, in multiple places in your Bible. In one place, you know, he, you know, the prophet, I think it was Ezekiel, who said, you know, they're going to call me Ishi, which means husband. They're going to see him as the Messiah once again. He's going to come back. You know, one foot on the mountain and one foot on the sea. Time will be no more. And just like that, they're going to see him as the Messiah. He's going to walk through the eastern gates right down the street of Jerusalem, and they will see him that he was their Messiah. And, and, and it's happened for that reason. Now for almost 2,000 years, that blindness has prevailed upon the Jews as a nation. Thank God there are Jews that have received the gospel. Even though blindness has happened to the Jews as a nation. But scripture speaks of a time when it will be removed, as I said, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now I believe that's when Jesus appears and takes his bride away. When, that gent, when, when those Gentiles have came into the church then God comes and takes his bride away. And I believe that's when the rapture happens. I may be wrong. I don't know, but that's what I believe. And when blindness is removed from the Jewish people, watch what happens. It's given to the Gentiles. And we know this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. Read this with me. For the mystery of iniquity doth authority work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That word let means to withhold or to hinder in the Greek. In other words, there is a force that is withholding or hindering the Antichrist from taking power. That force is the church. The Spirit of God in the church. And when that force is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist can have his way with the world. Verse 8, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. See, he's talking about the Antichrist. With all power and signs and lying wonders. Remember whenever, uh, you know, they fell down and they worshiped the beast, uh, you know, and, and we say, well, how could that ever happen? Well, here it is. He's going to have lying wonders. Verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they, watch this now, they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe 
a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I've heard people say, I've taught Bible studies to people that have said, oh, you know, if, if I miss the rapture, I'm never going to take the mark of the beast. If it happens the way dispensationalists say it's going to happen, I don't know. I'm just being honest with you if it will or not. But if it happens that way, I've had people say, you know what, I will never take the mark of the beast. I'll let them behead me, and then I'll go straight down. I don't know if that's how it works or not, but I, I know this, my friend. The Bible says that if you hear the gospel now, you will be deceived then. If you harden your heart now, you will have blindness put over your eyes then. Just like the Pharisees that said, the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees in the days of Jesus, they always told the Lord, they said, well, if we had been alive in the days of the prophets, we would never, we would never have killed the prophets. We would never have done those things. But Jesus said, you know what? It's upon this generation that the blood of every prophet that's ever been killed and has ever been martyred is going to come upon and be required of this generation. And in 70 AD, Titus, governor of marched down the streets of Jerusalem and he killed and slaughtered thousands of Jews and the blood of the prophets did come upon that generation but they said oh you know we'll never uh, you know when Messiah comes we're going to know him but they ended up crucifying the Lord of glory because there was blindness to their hearts God said he would send strong delusion that they would believe a lie who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved these people had the chance to be saved they had the gospel preached to them so you know in uh, and many times over and over and over and over. And they sat in Sunday school rooms. And they sat on Wednesday night services. And they heard Sunday morning messages. And they, and they saw the tears of their pleading pastor as he pounded the pulpit. And they pleaded with, and, uh, and he pleaded with the people. They felt uh, the moving of God's spirit. And they turned a blind eye and they turned a deaf ear. And he said, those people are going to be blinded. They're going to have a spiritual blindness. Now let me take that to the next step. That there is... A blindness and a hardening that is already happening in this world, especially in America. People don't respond to the gospel like they used to. Again, I'm not being negative. I'm just being real. You know, we've had people, my own brother who pastors a whole mission church in Grafton, Illinois, prayed dozens of people through the Holy Ghost. I mean, dozens of people have gotten delivered and prayed through uh, and, and, and baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And many of them don't even come back. And we wonder why. Well, if it was 50 years ago, that didn't happen then. Here's why. Because people are blind and people's heart is becoming hard. And people, many people do not repent in sackcloth and ashes like they used to. The conscience has been seared and it's Sin simply does not bother people in this generation like it used to bother. If you go back to previous generations to what many have called the so-called greatest generation, which was the generation that fought World War II, the generation of the 30s and 40s and 50s, those people had a, had, a, uh, had, had a much better conscience than this generation had. Those people had a better understanding of right from wrong and sin uh, uh, from right and wrong, rather righteousness from unrighteousness than this generation has. But this generation is twisted and topsy turvy and they think good is evil and evil is good and righteousness is unrighteousness and righteousness is un and unrighteousness is righteousness and they're all twisted and they don't understand many things because their conscience is seared and many of their heart has become hardened and there isn't the shock to sin as there used to be it's the hardening of their hearts because it's midnight and God has called the church to be the church like never before. Amen. Just like in Paul's day, there is a spirit in this age that combats the church. If there was a spirit back in the days of the Apostle Paul, there is a spirit in today's age that is battling this nation, this city, this country, your home, and you personally. It's midnight. And God has called us to be the church. It is an evil spirit from hell that is battling this generation. 
and he's battling the church in this midnight hour. Revelation 16 and verse 13 says this, And I saw three unclean spirit-like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, he said, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watch and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. I challenge you to find me a single prophecy other than the battle of Gog and Magog that has not already come to pass, that would, that would need to come to pass before Jesus comes back for his church. You will not find it. There is not a single prophetic event that has yet to happen. Other than the world will keep getting more, worse, and more worse. And God is, I believe God is going to send a great revival into this generation. But at an hour where strength has decreased, it's a lack of prayer. Prayer is one of the things that combats the spirit of the age and helps us keep our garments clean. Because at a time where he said the devil is going to come down having great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. You know, my friend, the devil knows what time it is. And it's a sad day when the devil knows what time it is. But there might be some folks in the church that's kind of sleeping uh, in the night because they're weary from the day's labor and they're weary of waiting. And maybe somewhere in your heart you may have thought, well, he's not going to come uh, in my lifetime. And I'm here to tell you, my friend, that we need to wake up and realize it's not 1158 anymore. This is not 1987 anymore. This is the year 2020. It's worse than it's ever been before. And you know what? The church needs to be more alive than it has ever been before. We need to have more prayer, not less prayer. We need to be more in the Word, not less in the Word. We need to be more aware of sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness than we have ever been before because this is the midnight hour and there's not much time left. Paul said in Ephesians 5 and 18, and be not drunk with wine <coughs> wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We cannot combat the spirit of the age without the oil of the Holy Ghost. We cannot combat the spirit of this age without the oil of the Holy Ghost. If they had it then... In the 40s and 50s, I remember hearing the stories of whenever they would get so full of God's spirit that they would roll in the aisles. Oh, I'm not telling you to roll in the aisles necessarily, but you know what? We need that kind of crazy attitude. I want to get God like they got God. I want to get him like they got him. I want to have the power that they had back then. I want to have that and more. I want to have a double portion because God is ready to pour out his spirit, but the church has to be awake and Alive and realize what hour it is. The Azusa Street Revival came, you know, about to turn right into the 1900s. Dwight L. Moody, who was one of the greatest missionaries of the later 18th, uh, 1800s, on his deathbed, he died in 1901. He said, One of the greatest moves of God is about ready to happen. He said that on his deathbed. Now, I don't know if he had the Holy Ghost or not. I think he did, but I don't know. To the best of my knowledge, there's no, there's no uh, reference that he did or didn't. But it was just a few years later when the Azusa Street Revival would break out. And there was, there was a little-known prophecy that came out in the days of the Azusa Street Revival that somebody wrote down. It's been passed down from generation to generation since then. 
But it was spoken in 1906 at that very revival. It was a message in tongues and a word of interpretation that came forth. And I want to remind you tonight what it was over 100 years later. It has absolutely came true. And the prophecy was this. In the last days, three things will befall the great Pentecostal movement. Remember, this was at a time when the Pentecostal movement wasn't much of a movement yet. Azusa was just happening. But this is what it said. The first, there will be an overemphasis on power rather than on righteousness and right living. Secondly, an overemphasis on praise to a God they no longer pray to. And thirdly, an overemphasis on the gifts of the Spirit rather than the Lordship of Christ. And when I read that, I think, my God, they had this generation pegged to A.T. Now, it's interesting that, you know, he said, in the last days was the prophecy. In the last day. That was 100 years ago. And this prophecy has came to a glaring and obvious fulfillment right before our eyes. They had just generation pegged. And here's why. Carnality is a sickness among God's people. Where people are estranged from holiness and turned off by those old-fashioned ways. They simply would rather have their ears tickled than hear the truth that saves them because it's midnight. One symptom of carnality is lacking zeal and enthusiasm for the things of God, prioritizing worldly things above the Word of God. In short, it's simply falling out of love with Jesus. Although we don't like to call it that. We're more relaxed than they were then. We're wiser than they were then. Oh, really? Or is it that simply we just need a little bit more of God than we have now? Or is it that we need the fire stoked in us like they had that fire stoked in them? Carnality is a sickness that causes weakness and fatigue just like a physical heart condition causes the same. If you have a heart condition, you will often be be weak and fatigued and you'll get lightheaded and dizzy. When you stand out, you have to sit down. I'm not a doctor, but I've worked around enough doctors and I know that that's not always, it's not always meaning a heart condition. But, but if you have a heart condition, that is a, that is a sign that you could have a heart condition. So carnality is a heart condition that causes weakness and fatigue and a feeling of disconnectedness to the head. Revelation 3 and 14 he said this, and unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans, write this, these things saith the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know that works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I would, you were either cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and either cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And know not that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You can look up those five words, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Every single one of them is in, in the New Testament is used to connect uh, the condition of a sinner. And yet he's using it for the church. He said, I counsel thee to buy me gold trod in the fire that you may be rich and white raiment that you may be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eyes so that thou may see. It reminds me of the parable of that man that tried to go into, uh, into the wedding but he didn't have on the wedding garment. And I've always believed that he's naked, but didn't know he was naked. He just didn't have on the wedding garment. Let me tell you, he said that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. The wedding garment is Christ. He is what we put on. 
And when you take him off, you don't have anything to cover your shame and your sin and your nakedness. You're not walking in the spirit anymore. You're walking in the flesh. And so Laodicea, which I believe is the last day church had, has a spiritual heart condition. Because some people seem to think that carnal Christians are somehow going to barely sneak into heaven and barely make it by the skin of their teeth. Simply because they come to church and they show up on Wednesdays once in a while and they show up on Sundays and they're here. Uh, and, and so they must be saying, well, I'm going to tell you, my friend, I'm not anybody's judge. But I can tell you this. First Peter 4 and 18 says this. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? That word scarcely means with great difficulty. It means that we got to press into it. There are some enemies that we're going to have to come up against. There are some things that we're going to have to defeat. There are some, there are some giants that we're going to have to battle over and over and over and over again. And we're going to have to keep fighting and keep pressing on until we hear the final trumpet sound or until we draw our very last breath. We cannot let up. There is no in-between. You have to be in all the way. When married couples fall out of love, <clears throat> they'll often take off their wedding rings, which was a symbol of that love. <clears throat> You've seen people do it. You know, married couples get into an argument. She takes off her wedding ring and throws it across the room at him. Or he'll take off his wedding ring and throw it across. He'll, he'll thank God my wife and I have never had a moment like that. <laughs> he takes off his wedding ring and he puts it on the nightstand. He says, I'm going out. And when people begin to fall out of love with Jesus, they begin to take off the wedding garment. Christ, as they've already said, is the wedding garment. Galatians 3 and 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Just as whenever Jacob, whenever, or yeah, it was, it was Jacob whenever he went before his father Isaac. And what did he put on? He put on the garments of the elder brother. And so we put on Christ. He is our elder brother. Uh, amen. He, we put on his righteousness. We put on his blood. We put on his spirit every single day when I get up. I've got to get prayed up. I've got to get filled up because I need God today. I can't rely on yesterday's manna for today and it gets spoiled. It won't last more than a day. I need fresh bread. I need fresh manna every single day that I live. Every morning when I get up, i got to find a place to pray and to call on the name of God and get my face in the word because I need Jesus every single day. Christ is the wedding garment. When you're walking not when you're when you're not walking in the spirit each day, you've taken him off and walking in the flesh. We think of the Christian walk in terms of in church or backslidden as if there's no in between. But what about that middle ground? If you've given up any territory to your flesh or the devil, you may not have been backslided. You may not have backslidden, but you may have regressed. Regressed. And that is the dangerous condition of giving up territory to your flesh or to the devil. That's called spiritual regression. And it is the first step toward backsliding. Whenever you regress to the point where, by definition, I'm not as spiritual as I used to be, but I'm not out and, you know, you might say this in your mind. I'm not as spiritual as I used to be, but I'm not out drinking or doing drugs or doing a bunch of bad things. So I'm okay. And that, that may be true. You're not backslid. But you probably have regressed. Let me ask you this. Rhetorically speaking, do you pray 
like you once prayed? Do you worship like you once worshipped him? Do you love him like you once loved him? Uh, Do you battle against your flesh and are you crucified in the flesh the way that you were once crucified in the flesh? Are you as passionate for God and the things of the word like you used to be passionate about the things of the word. And again, I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody because I know that living for God is a series of corrections. I've said that many times, but I'm going to tell you that, that if you're on a downslope, then you're in a spiritual regression. And if you don't correct it soon, it's going to turn into more regression and more regression. Before you know it, you start saying, well, I feel disconnected from the church uh, uh, and, 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 and nobody loves me. And before you know it, somebody does or doesn't do something that offends you. And, and before you know it, you have a reason to step out of the church and you are full-fledged backslidden because you started giving up territory little by little to the enemy. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Laodicea had regressed to the point where Jesus was ready to vomit them out of his mouth. And they had regressed. Our pastor said this just a few months ago. He said this, and I quote, something is about to shift in the spirit realm, and I want you to be part of it. I know you remember it, but if you don't, let me remind you, he said it twice in two different messages. And that, my friends, was a true word from the Lord. Because here's the truth of it all. Here's here's the larger picture. This world is getting ready for the appearance of Jesus Christ. The church must not be asleep. We must be awake. We must have our lamps trimmed, and we must be doing the will of God. I know that just in the past couple of years, we've, well, you know, we've had a little growth spurt at this church. It's not been a little growth spurt. It's been a, a nice growth spurt. We've had people get healed. We've had Holy Ghost and feelings. The people get baptized. We've had you know, discipling is going on. We've had a lot of great things going on. But you know what? I just feel like the Lord is saying, you know, don't stop now. Keep the pedal to the metal. Finish it. Finish it. Finish it. Don't stop now. There's more that I have for you. There's more that I have for you personally. There's a bigger ministry than you've ever dreamed of before. There's, there's more things than, uh, that God has for you and for this church collectively than you could ever imagine. There's a greater revival that wants to break out in this city but we got to finish it and I close musicians please come you may have heard the Chiefs won the Super Bowl Sunday you may have heard I don't know and for three quarters the Chiefs were owned by the 49ers for the most part they could not do it until something happened that most of the media missed. And you may have read about it. With about 12 minutes left, with like 12 minutes and I think just a few seconds left in the fourth quarter, with the 49ers leading by 10 points, 20 to 10. Apparently, the 49ers, not all of them, but many of them, decided it was a good idea to take a victory pose. If I had seen that picture on Facebook. And the media source that I read said, Multiple players came off the bench to pose for it. Players were celebrating. They were getting ready to pour the cooler over Shanahan's head. Five minutes in regulation time later, with a little over seven minutes left, on a third and 15 play, Patrick Mahomes found Tyreek Hill. They had to know that was going to come. 45 yards pass downfield on a third and 15 play. 
and the momentum shifted just like that. As you know, the Chiefs ended up winning like 30 or 31 to 20 or 21 or something like that. <clears throat> Here's the part that you may not know. With two minutes left and the Chiefs up by 11 points and the defense on the field, the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, the rock star that's getting ready to sign a 10-year and 400-and-something million-dollar deal, was seen going up and down the sidelines, and he was saying one word, finish. And the cameras would, would pan in and out, and that's what he was saying. He was yelling at the defense, and he was yelling at the, even the coaches, they said. Players, anybody that listened, he was saying, finish it! I know that we're out by 11 and it doesn't seem like they're going to win, but don't give up a single yard. Make them fight for every inch. Give it all you've got. I know that you fought hard for four quarters. I know it's been a long season, but we got two minutes left. And I know it looks like a victory, but we can't let up now. So finish it. And that, my friend, is the difference between a losing team and a winning team. And if you're a 49ers fan, I'm not saying anything. It's the 49ers. My hat's off to them. They are a great team. They'll be back next year to do, to do great things. They might be next year Super Bowl champs. I don't know. But I'm just saying this, that I hear the voice of the Spirit saying tonight, finish it. Keep the pedal to the metal. Don't stop now. I know that things may be going good or they may not be going so good, but it's time to finish it. It's time to finish what I started. Amen. Paul wrote to Timothy when he was in prison and he was getting ready to to be headed and he said I'm still finishing the course I'm still fighting the good fight of faith and one day I plan to cross the finish line but until I do until I hear the trumpet sound and Gabriel toot his horn or until I draw my last breath I'm gonna fight my flesh and the devil with everything that I've got every prayer meeting I'm gonna be there every time the altars are open I'm gonna be the one of the first ones at the altar every time the pastor calls a three-day prayer prayer meeting, I'm going to do my very best to pray and to fast and to seek the face of God because I don't want to regress and I don't want to not finish what God started in me. Let's stand. Because we know he's going to finish it. He said, he that hath begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, but it's not him finishing it that I'm worried about. It's us finishing the race. It's us staying in the battle. It's us keeping the pedal to the metal and keeping the passions burning hot. You know, if you're, you know, if you're in a place where you're like, man, I'm not passionate like I used to be. You know what? Here's the truth of that. You control the depth of your passion and your zeal. At any time, you can turn it up and you can turn it down. If you're in a place right now tonight where you have regressed, let me bring some encouraging news to you, my friend. There is a God who is here, and he said, a flickering light he will not sniff out. If there's anything left, if all that's left of what used to be a huge bonfire, it's all that left is a little glimmering light of a candle. 
He said, I'm not going to snuff that out. He said, but I'm going to fan it with my spirit. I'm going to do great things. And it can be brighter than it's ever been before. You can do more than you've ever been before. Don't look back on your life and say, well, I've made so many mistakes and, and I haven't finished well so far. You know what? You're not finished yet because the fact that you are here and you've got breath in your lungs, uh, amen, and life in your body, that means he's not done with me yet. There's still more that God has for me to do and I want to finish. I don't want to regress. Lift your hands right now to the Lord and just let God talk to your heart. Come on, let your voices out for a moment right now. I just want to open up these altars right now. If you want to come and just let God talk to your heart, come on, finish tonight. Finish it. Don't don't let up. Don't regress. Finish what he started in you. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us tonight, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let your voices out. Call out to God. Let the passions burn, burn bright again. Lord, I want to pray like I've never prayed before. I want to be in the Word like I've never been in the Word before, God. I want to do more than I've ever done before for your kingdom, God. I want to buy into the pastor's vision and what God and you are, what, what you're trying to do in this city, God, and in my life, Lord. I want to buy into it because there's greater things that are yet to come. Greater things are yet to come, and it's midnight. I can hear the voice of that messenger saying, Behold, the bridegroom is getting ready to come. Make sure there's oil in your lamps. Don't let it go out. Hallelujah. Sure. 